I don't want to just be a space tourist. I want to I want to work in space. I want to contribute to the space industry and expand it and improve it and make sure that whatever technologies that are developed for space then come down and help people on Earth as well. So it's one of the main reasons that I want to be part of all of this. ESA is the European Space Agency is my route through. Um, they don't put out a call very often. It might every 10 to 15 years they put out a call for astronauts and they'll get tens of thousands of applicants for about six to eight spaces is roughly what they do. So they are due a call soon. No one really knows when. There are rumors, but there are there is a call due soon. Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Bernadette Ballantyne, and in this episode, I went to talk to Sophie Harker about how engineering is underpinning her ambition to go into space and develop new technologies for the good of humankind. Now, Sophie's not an astronaut yet, but she is the Institution of Engineering and Technology's Young Woman Engineer of the Year, and she became an engineer after taking advice from the first Briton in space, Dr Helen Sharman, who made history in 1991 when she spent eight days on the Mir space station. From studying maths at the University of Nottingham, Sophie took Helen's advice and became an aerodynamics and performance engineer at BAE Systems. Although she's yet to leave planet Earth, she's been working on designs for revolutionary new aircraft that can enter space in a single stage from a runway takeoff. Known as the Skylon space plane, it uses a unique synergetic air-breathing rocket engine known as Sabre, and Sophie applied a lot of maths in calculating its optimum trajectory. We met at the IET in London, where I asked Sophie about engineering, spaceflight and going to Mars. Sophie, welcome to Engineering Matters. Thank you for having me. But tell us a bit about yourself in terms of the role that you do now. Yeah, so um, I'm an aerospace engineer, so I work for BA Systems. Um, up until about a month ago, I was working as an aerodynamicist on sort of future concepts. So essentially looking at how a future concept is going to fly or not. Um, and then if it does fly, how far, how fast, that sort of thing. Um, but I have just changed now, so I have just moved teams. I'm looking more at um, the flight control system. So how can I keep it in the sky when it is flying? So how do you get into doing that? How do you become somebody who's involved with the future of aviation? Yeah, I have a love for it, really. Um, yeah, so it, it kind of... Um, fell upon me. I, uh, I, I did maths at university. I didn't, I didn't do engineering and um, I applied to BAE sort of just as you do when you're looking for an internship. Um, and I did an internship with them and I really enjoyed my time. And I kind of just moved throughout the company and found that the futuristic stuff is the stuff I enjoyed the most. So that's kind of where I ended up um, and I haven't really left. And I actually really enjoy the sort of the inventing and creating the future and sort of that leaving the legacy sort of stuff. I'm going to ask you um, a bit more about the work you do now. Mm -hmm. But first of all, I, I understand that you, we, we've talked before, you <laughs> talked about your interest in space. Yeah. <laughs> so let's take us back in time a little bit and tell us about where that came from. Yeah. So um, I, I have a bit of a sort of unusual story as to how I got into engineering as a whole. Um, when, like, when I was younger, when I was about 16, I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I, was, when I grew up. Like, I genuinely didn't know. Um, I knew I was good at maths and that was kind of that was as far as it went um, I don't come from a science or engineering background or anything like that um, but when I was 16 I got to go to Kennedy Space Center out in the US um, and I watched this movie of this astronaut on Mars and she dropped this photo and I, I, I genuinely can't actually remember the, the statement that she, she says but it's something like this could be you like you could be the next person in space you could be the first person on Mars and I remember sitting there at 16 being like 
yes, yes, I could be. That is exactly <laughs> what I want to do. Um, and I genuinely do. That's like what I want to be. I want to be an astronaut. And um, so I came back to the UK and did every nerdy thing I could, including Space School UK and all those sort of things. Um, and when I was 19, so I was already at university at this point doing maths, and I met Dr. Helen Sharman, who, for those that don't know, was the first Briton in space. Um, and she was the one that told me to look at engineering. And up until that point, I genuinely thought engineers were someone that um, fixed your washing machine or fixed a satellite dish. That's genuinely what I thought they were um, until she went, actually, that's a very, very small part of it. The majority of this is all like theory and maths and cool physics and things like that. And she opened my eyes to it. And I genuinely would not be an engineer without that one moment with her. Did she give you any sort of steers as to what kind of engineering would work, given your ambitions of becoming an astronaut? Um, not really. She, she was very much of follow what you're interested in, follow what you're passionate about, because um, it is you, you do have to have um, an interest in what you're what you're engineering, regardless of what your um, your life goal, as it were, is. Um, so she said, follow what you're interested in, um, and that kind of fell upon the space world as a whole, because everything about space fascinates me. How we get there, what we do when we're there, beyond like things we can see, all that sort of stuff just absolutely fascinates me. And so it kind of just drew me in from day one, and I just followed it and ended up in aerospace as a whole. Do you remember what you felt like when you went to the Kennedy Space Center? Yeah, yeah. I was uh, a bit overwhelmed because you, you walk in and you, you see the massive Saturn V rocket and I didn't quite realize what it was. Like, I knew what it was, but you know, when you just don't put two and two together to think actually this thing's like, well, part of this thing has been to the moon. Like, it's just um, phenomenal to see. And so it was only when I sort of sat down and watched the film and was like, oh, this is that, this is what this really is, um, that I just got excited. I remember thinking it clicked and nothing's ever clicked before. Like no, no sort of careers that people have talked to me. Like when you do maths particularly, people go, oh, so you're either going to be a maths teacher or go into finance. And I was like, no, <laughs> I don't want to do either of those things. Um, so this was the first time something clicked and I was like, yeah, I want to do this sort of maths. This is what I want to do. Yeah. And then you talked about doing things like Space School UK, which I've never heard of. <laughs> <laughs> What's that? So Space School UK is uh, it's a week-long space school. Um, space school. It's a week-long school in Leicester. Um, and you you go along and you do all sorts of really cool stuff. So you go to like lectures on black holes. You do indoor air diving, scuba diving, like proper like underwater training for like building stuff. It's amazing. And it's all just a taste of the space industry as a whole. And I got to play with like liquid nitrogen and all sorts of really cool stuff. So as like a 16, 17 year old as I was at the time, I had the best week of my life today. It was so good. And I recommend anyone with young people to send, send them along because it is great fun. And so you were studying maths at university when you met Dr. Helen Sharman. Um, so what did that mean for you when you were on your maths degree and now you had this really clear goal of what you wanted to do? What happened next? So I kind of took her word for gospel and I was like, oh, it's okay, everything's going to work towards that now. So um, I sort of specialized in the more applied maths. So people often think maths and engineering are separate things. Well, they're not maths is or well, engineering is applied maths it is exactly what it is so I sort of moved towards applied maths so things like fluid mechanics electromagnetism that sort of thing um I just did it in a slightly different way to sort of the the typical engineer would do at university which has actually helped me quite a bit in my career because I approach things quite differently in that sense um and has led me to a lot of opportunities in sort of the really early life cycles sort of really concepts and stuff because that's where my brain works best because it's all the maths like derivation stuff where, where were the opportunities in terms of um, work? Because a lot of people at university who have ambitions, it's a whole new step change to then look at finding employment in that sector. So how did you go about that? So I was, <laughs> I was really lucky. Um, I applied 
to a few big engineering firms between my third and fourth years at university just to see um, just do an internship to to find out whether engineering really was for me. So up until that point, I hadn't really done it. Like I'd done, I'd done the mathematical side, but I'd not experienced it. So I wanted to do an internship for three months over the summer. Um, and BAE was one of those. Um, and they, <laughs> I'll be honest, they were like right on the coast down in Christchurch in Dorset. And I thought this looks like a nice place to live. <laughs> Go and surf, it'd be great. Um, and that was genuinely why I chose them at the time. I didn't really know much about them. I didn't really know much about the aerospace industry at all. Um, and I just had the best three months and I really like, I, I should credit them for the fact that I, I came back to BA when I graduated. Um, and that was kind of how it happened. Like I had such a good time over my three months that I reapplied on the graduate scheme. And um, because I'd done my internship, I got to like, skip a few stages and such, but I still had to go through all the assessment centers and things. Um, and it just, yeah, it kind of just fell into place. And I think I had such an interest and good time with them that it kind of came across when I did it that I'd it wasn't necessarily that they were the thing I've been gunning for since I was like five. It was just, um, this was what I want to do and I'm passionate about doing it. That mm. makes sense. Yeah, it does. I'm just wondering what sort of work you got to do as a graduate. Oh, sorry, yeah. as a, on an internship mm -hmm. through a summer. What sort yeah. of things were you exposed to that would be your real first taster of, of engineering as a career? Yeah, so I, I had a really good um, internship from the fact that I was given a project that was mine um, and... It, essentially there was an existing piece of software that was already that was already um, in development with the company and they wanted to work out whether we could make an app for the army with it um, and they essentially just challenged me to do it and so I had three months like I had a lot of help from people who knew about different things to help me out but um, it was mine at the end of the day and so at the end of the the three months I had this app written and created and um, I believe it's still in, in action with the, with the army. Brilliant. And that, that is a lot of responsibility. It actually. Was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little bit daunting, but it was good fun and I really enjoyed it. So I came back. <laughs> and so when you joined them after graduating, where did you go to university? I don't know if you mentioned. Uh, university of Nottingham. Yeah. Um, we, we went there the other week, actually, in Engineering <laughs> Matters to look at the Centre for Additive Manufacturing. Yes. We did a, a 3D printing mm. episode, which... Uh, I would say this, but it's fantastic. So listen to it. If you, um, but uh, so so obviously from from the University of Nottingham, whereabouts were you placed when you joined BAE full time? So when you when at the time when you joined the graduate scheme, um, you you did four six month placements around different parts of the company to sort of get an understanding of all the different types of aircraft that we do, all the different like parts of the life cycle. So right in the early concepts to manufacturing all the way to supporting them while they're still still flying so I did a few different placements all around the place so I started off in something called central engineering which is more like governance of engineering than it is about sort of creating anything um so I started to work on um typhoon cockpit group which is sort of upgrading the cockpit of the typhoon to make sure that um when you upgrade the capability that you can also fly it like <laughs> you can still keep using it um and that was the sort of first time I worked on the platform um and that was all systems engineering based um, from there, I kind of knew what Typhoon could do, but I wanted to know how it did it. So I moved into aerodynamics, which is sort of the flows and that sort of thing over an aircraft and keeping it in the sky. And that that was the first time I sort of really started to use my maths and I really enjoyed that and I stuck with that. Um, and then when I was there, um, BA Systems invested in a company called Reaction Engines, and I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, and uh, they, I kind of just went to our engineering director and said, I really want to go. Like that, that is it. I'm, this is what I want to do. Um, and luckily for me, they listened and uh, set, sent me down there for six months. So I then did aerodynamics and performance on something called the Skylon space plane, which is a, a, like a concept space plane that they have at the company. 
which again I'll probably talk about in a bit. <laughs> yeah, the Skylon space plane was quite famous when it was announced in terms of having a, an engine that could breathe and being able to get into space really quickly, I think 15 minutes or something really super fast. So maybe you could just tell us a bit about that project in general and then we'll ask you to tell us a bit about the work that you did. Yeah, so Reaction Engines is the name of the company um, and they're developing something called Sabre. So Sabre stands for the Synergetic Air Breathing Rocket Engine. And essentially what it is, is like a turbojet and a rocket like smushed into one, um, which means that it goes from takeoff, so zero as it were, um, all the way up to about Mach 5.4, Mach 5.5 in air breathing mode is what they call it, which is like, like a normal turbojet is air breathing. Um, from that point, it then shuts off his intake. The air stops coming in and it uses onboard oxygen um, and goes into like a rocket mode to get out of them um, just up into orbit. I was going to say, at what point does that transition happen? So around Mach 5.5, about 28 kilometers is, is roughly around when it happens. Um, but the, the reason it can get to Mach 5.5, because the sort of the, the fastest production engine in the world or production aircraft in the world is the SR-71. And that was about Mach 3.2, 3.5, really at a push. Um, and that's because the turbojets max out. They get too hot, so they can't cope with the heat. Um, whereas Sabre has something called a pre-cooler on the front of the engine, which cools the air from 1,000 degrees to minus 150 degrees in a 20th of a second. It that's is, amazing. Yeah, it's phenomenal. And it's not sci-fi, it's real. It's something that they have tested. Um, they're currently doing more testing out in Colorado at the moment. Um, it is an amazing piece of technology, um, and it's very much happening. That must have applications outside of um, aviation. Oh yeah, definitely. So, so that most of the, the the clever part about the the prequel is actually in its manufacture, um, and that sort of manufacturing really small tubes that allow this massive surface area and things, um, and that definitely they've had lots of interest as to how they can use it, and they have like part of the company does look at other industries. So, for example, they had a, a partnership with Bloodhound at one point and that sort of thing. Hmm. Okay, so so tell us about what you were doing on the Skylon project. Yeah, so I was there looking at the Skylon space plane. So space, the Skylon space plane would be the world's first single stage to orbit space plane. Um, and when, what, what I mean by space plane is something that takes off from a runway and lands on a runway. So the shuttle, that was that was a space plane. Um, well, didn't take off from a runway, but <laughs> it is a space plane because it landed on one. Um, but it didn't have its own sort of propulsion system. That was it was separate and um, it had the boosters that had to drop that down, back down to earth whereas what Skylon is a single stage to orbit so it doesn't drop anything back down there are no boosters that you need to collect if you're going to reattach them or whatever it is like um, most companies are looking at and um, it is just like if you were getting on a plane to Spain it is exactly the same going all the way up into into orbit and yeah. um, so what I was doing with it is optimizing its trajectory so with anything to do with aviation and particularly to do with space the lighter, the better. You don't you don't want um, a really heavy thing, so you want to make sure that you have the minimal amount of fuel in there. You don't have don't want to be putting burning extra fuel for no reason. So, what I was looking at is looking at the trajectory, so essentially the path into space, and making sure that you was using the optimal optimal amount of fuel to do that. Yeah, and, and what about? Um optimizing it also for re-entry because you must mm -hmm. have to I'm not quite sure how the system <laughs> works in terms of getting back again but it mm. can also do that so what does that mean in terms of the trajectory that you're you were planning for yeah so it, it you do have to optimize the re-entry um, and that was something the shuttle itself had a big problem with um, and the main reason it's a problem is because of the sheer amount of heat so Skylon um, similar to the shuttle glides back down it, it's not powered um, descent but what happens when you go, oh, oh, you are coming, you are coming in like Mach 25 like when it very first hits the, um, the atmosphere. So it is very, very hot. Um, so that you do have to 
um, work out a path that minimizes not only the heat loads on the sort of the main surfaces, but also distributes them so that it's not just on like a, a straight, really small point. So you've got a lot of heat in a small area. You can sort of spread it out all over the place. So it was a lot of maths, which is why I loved yeah. it. <laughs> and yeah. and it, it was just about sort of changing and spreading that heat around the aircraft. Give us an indication for anyone who's into maths that's listening to this that that would like to know what... Ca- I mean, I'm not <laughs> going to put you on the spot in terms of telling the exact calculation, <laughs> but give us a feel for the type of maths that this is. Is this? I'm thinking of geometry and algebra, but, but give us a bit more detail about the kind of maths that you had to do for that trajectory optimization. Yeah, so funnily enough, geometry and algebra together is kind of what it was. Um, so it's something called calculus of variation was something I did... Um, quite a lot of and that's kind of like taking a 3d shape and squashing it into a 2d shape and then rebuilding it into a 3d shape again um that's kind of that's kind of it really yeah. <laughs> there must be sort of um coefficients that you have to apply for things like the the heat and the materials of the plane and the i don't know the temperature of the atmosphere <laughs> i don't yeah so so there's a lot of sort of calculation based around any aircraft um Things like when you are flying really fast, not only do you have like your air resistance, your thrust, your lift, but you also have like friction on the skin. You have like a thin film of no friction at all. Like there's all sorts of different um, sort of fluid mechanical parts. Um, that wasn't quite what I was working on at the time because it, the thing with Skylon is it's very, very early concept. It is, it's not been built. It's not It's not a quite flying yet, hopefully soon, but it, it's not flying yet or anything. So a lot of the work that's done on it is very early stage, just work out, um, what the problem space is rather than solving any of the problems necessarily yet although they have solved a lot of the problems and um, there are still many left unanswered and there's still many unknowns because we've never flown that fast before because we've never had a production aircraft because we've never had a single stage to orbit you ha- you have to work out what problems you're going to face before you can actually solve them yeah yeah so where did that project get to and where did your involvement get to so I did six months with Reaction Engines, like at their offices just south of Oxford, um, and then went back to BE Systems um, and worked in their concepts team. Um, and what I did with them is look at the applications of the Sabre engine sort of all over the place. So not just in Skylon, but other space planes. So like a two-stage to orbit, for example, or particularly one of the big areas of interest was hypersonics. So hypersonic means traveling faster than Mach 5. So you're still talking very, very fast. Um, and then looking at how we could get those aircraft to fly, what sort of shape are we going to have to have them in? And things like that is powered by hydrogen. So you've got a hydrogen tank in there. How are you going to fix that into an aircraft? Because notoriously aircraft do not like hydrogen. So there's, there's all sorts of different... Um, problems again that you're just looking to find out what the problems are because it's such early stage um saber itself with the engine is maturing a lot um, it is so I, me- I mentioned before that there's a, a test going out in colorado on the pre-cooler and what that is it's the second part of the pre-cooler testing so the the first part was um back in the early 2010s where they um tested from ambient temperatures down to minus 150 degrees and they proved that they proved taking it through zero and sorting the frosting problem because obviously when you take something through zero you've got water vapor that frosts um so now they're looking at the thousand degree down to ambient temperatures out in the colorado and they've had their first set of tests through which have been successful so they're doing really well at the moment with that um and then next year into 2020 ish they're looking to do sort of a core engine test, like ground test, um, to work out some of the the plumbing, literally, um, of the engine. And then from there, like a few years on, you're talking the full engine test, the flight test, and all this is it's gradually getting there. Um, yeah, so it's, it's on its way. It definitely is on its way. Do you think that um, we will be seeing commercial space travel in our lifetime? 
I definitely do. I definitely do. I mean, we have to an extent already um, that you can buy your ticket on Borders of Sawyer's if you really want. Like, it costs you a lot of money, but you could do it. The last time <laughs> I looked, I think there was tickets for Virgin Galactic were about £100,000. Yeah. I think yeah. that was a long time ago. And I'll have to double check that before we put this out. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, a lot of money. I did double check. The seats were $250,000. That's £194,000 at today's exchange rate. And according to Virgin Galactic, the tickets are now fully sold out. Yeah, so they are very expensive. Um, but it's the, the main barrier for me with, with um, sort of commercial space travel as in like space tourism style stuff is mostly the sort of safety aspect to it. So a rocket is essentially a missile. It's essentially what it is. Um, it is very, like, it is notoriously hard to control and notoriously volatile. So you have to make sure that if you are putting members of the public onto these things, that the safety is yeah. is up to scratch, really. Yeah. Um, and that's what a space plane does because it operates like an aviation style rather than like rocketry so it reduces that space that 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 safety issue that that you would get that's something that we did an episode recently on electric aviation Mm. and one of the big challenges that people that work in that space along with things like battery power density Mm. it's about regulation and the safety case improving the safety case because the first Mm. step to get the basis for certification is maturation of the technology Mm. and that can take years and then actually creating the the protocols the tests the methods to prove Mm -hmm. the safety a large airplane I think takes five years after you've gone through the first few steps um so you you can be I think I think the the, you can be talking a decade really for electric aviation to Mm -hmm. be certified and proven and and this is a greater leap if you like (laughs) than electrification because you are you're adding a new power source uh in some cases to a a known technology whereas this Mm -hmm. is a whole new kettle of fish very much so yeah so Sabre's sort of um, described as a new class of engine it's not described as an upgrade of the rocket or it's not described as an upgrade of the turbojet it is a n- whole new class of engine so you can't clear it as just sort of an expansion of existing aircraft because it's not it is a whole new thing so it will it will have to face those and they are very aware of that and they are working towards that and it's one of the advantages of it and also one of its disadvantages yeah, is yeah. that it is a new challenge class. and opportunity yes, exactly. at the same time. yeah but it, it will be sort of that big step change you talk about like the turbojet was to fly but also like the steam engine wants to travel so there's all sorts it is it is that bigger step change yeah and um, it's just going to take us a bit of time we're, we're on our way <laughs> and so so you've you finished working on that project have, and you're yeah. moving on to something new and I don't think you can you, <laughs> I think you have to be careful about what you can tell us yeah. about that but what can you tell us about the work you're doing now? Yeah, so I've moved on to flight control systems um, development for something called Team Tempest. So Team Tempest is um, a group of UK companies, so BA Systems, Rolls-Royce, MBDA and Leonardo. And what they're looking at is how we're going to sort of supply um, the future of the RAF um, and what they're going to be doing next So the Royal Air Force, what's coming um, to help them keep defending the country. So what we've uh, we've got is whole series of sort of technologies sort of investigations um and what i'll be looking at is sort of flight control systems how are we going to keep it in the sky and make sure it's under control with whatever fancy things that this a new aircraft of sorts will have mm-hmm. so that is that that application is both for um for military or uh, military yeah, that yeah, is a military, military yeah. application mm-hmm. uh, so why is this an important project so not only do the ref need to keep making sure that they are sort of have that competitive edge in the battlefield but one of the main reasons is that we need to make sure that we maintain a skill set so 
being able to develop um, aircraft and particularly combat aircraft are really complicated. They're not simple things. Um, just like Skyline is not simple and they're all similar skill sets. So we need to make sure that we are bringing the next generation through and able to keep doing that. Otherwise it's a skill that will be lost. Um, and so it is, that's one of the main reasons for having Team Tempest is to make sure we're training the next people to come around and make sure that we keep building. Skills is a big issue for engineering in general yeah. and having a uh, aspiring engineers coming into professions whether mm. it's to be in that industry or whether it's to become something else you know mm -hmm. it, it's really important and it sort of brings me on to ask you about your longer term ambitions <laughs> mm. which th there seems to be a pattern in terms of your career so far in terms of you've identified something you've known you've wanted to do it and you've gone and done it you know in terms of working on the Skylon project in terms of working in engineering applications using maths in an applied way this next challenge, I don't think it's going to be as easy because you, you know, you know that you want to be an astronaut. However, it's very, very, the opportunities are not as common as they are in some of the other projects. So what's your plan? Yeah, so uh, you're right. It is hard. <laughs> it is really hard. Um, and statistically, it's difficult. Um, and one of the most difficult things about it is there isn't really a route you, you can't go to like a careers advisor and go, okay, tell me how to be an astronaut and they'll tell you a list of things that you need to do. That, that, that isn't really a thing. There isn't like a common route that you take. You don't go to astronaut school when you're a child. That's not a thing. You can't do that. So it's, it is very much um, in, the, in sort of the hands of fate in a way. Um, so one, one of the main things that um, I'm sort of clear on is I don't want to just be a space tourist. I want to I want to work in space. I want to contribute to the space industry and expand it and, and improve it and make sure that whatever technologies that are developed for space then come down and help people on Earth as well. So it's one of the main reasons that I want to be part of all of this. Um, and the route to do that is to go through like a government agency. So like NASA, European Space Agency, Roscosmos, all those sort of things. Um, main obviously being British, ESA is the European Space Agency is my route through. Um, they don't put out a call very often. It might every 10 to 15 years, they put out a call for astronauts and they'll get tens of thousands of applicants for about six to eight spaces is roughly what they do. So they are due a call soon. No one really knows when. There are rumors, but there are there is a call due soon. Um, and all I can really do is make sure that I'm ready when that call through, comes through. So there is a minimum requirement. So you have to have um, a master's degree in engineering or maths or science and then like four years-ish relevant experience. So being in aerospace is relevant experience, for example. So I have that now. So that's that's all, all under my belt. Um, but anything I do now is just to make sure that when that call comes through, I'm their most qualified candidate. I'm the most appealing candidate for them. So um, things like learning languages, like putting myself into not life or death situations, but high pressure situations where I can get used to thinking under pressure and thinking quickly and coming up with solutions. And obviously engineering as a whole is great for that. Um, not only because you are dealing with things that you, you have to be obviously safe and things like that for, but you're also going down things like you have to make sure that you communicate well, you have to work as a team. All those things are vital for an astronaut and anybody in space. They are extremely vital. So being an engineer is all part of that. So what I do in my day-to-day -day helps that, but it's things that I do in my spare time as well, obviously push towards it. So it's uh, it's it's a hard path. It's not a, like a direct path. And I, I know my chance is obviously still statistically quite small, but I hope to think it's a bit, a bit, a bit greater than uh, most people's. It sounds like you're doing all the right things in terms of... <laughs> pre-qualification if this was a, a request for proposals for a project for a bid it sounds like you are ticking all the boxes in terms of the, the prerequisites uh, but do you when you look at um 
stories about historic space missions or watch documentaries about space mm -hmm. flight or there was recently a, a program on um, which had people try out it was fictional but mm -hmm. it had an astronaut leading it and it was mm -hmm. people trying out to become mm -hmm. an astronaut when you see, you see things like that and, and from your knowledge that you have already do you have an idea as what your dream role would be in terms of what would you be doing on the mission <laughs> what 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 is it that you see yourself as yeah, so astronauts have um, ha do have specialities. So obviously, if you're a pilot, then that, that's, that's just a specialty. But um, and they'll have like geologists who will look at rocks if you go to the moon, for example. Um, there will be specialities, but at the end of the day, they're all generalists, and they all have to be. So they have to be able to perform basic medical and surgical procedures, and they have to be able to understand computing systems. They have to be able to fight fight all those sort of things. You have to be able to do all of those. So. Um, in my head, um, in my head, um, what, I, what I would like to see myself doing in the future is just expanding scientific knowledge and understanding and sort of bringing whatever we experiment up in space back down to Earth and making it applicable to people on here. Because it's one of the things that people don't always see about space. They think there's a lot of sort of people that go, oh, well, why should we spend, we spend all this money in sending things and people to space? Um, and actually a lot of the things that get developed up there get brought back down to Earth and save lives and do all sorts of amazing things for mankind um so that's what i really want to that's what i see myself doing is bringing that sort of from different areas different types of experiments so whether it's a biomedical sort of thing or whether it's a mechanical thing or sort of low gravity manufacturing all those random yeah, things so, yeah bringing them down there was a brilliant example of uh, it was so brilliant we went and interviewed them because uh, <laughs> they took um plastic into space and mm -hmm. they used a 3d printer to fabricate something new mm -hmm. a new tool but then they took the new tool once they'd finished with it and the idea is that you then recycle it but i don't think people realize that the things that are being tested in space are not just about space flight but yeah, there's a lot uh, that happened with the previous space race and that's still happening today in terms of furthering technology on Earth. Um, so it sounds like you would have lots and lots of opportunity to do that were you to become an astronaut. Yeah, I hope so. That, that is the plan. Um, and it is, it's something I'm quite passionate about um, is sort of recycling something. And I don't mean recycling in the sort of the generic sense of putting stuff in the right bin, but I mean in creating something new about something that already exists or expanding the purpose of something. Um, and I think the space industry is a, a, a glowing example. They are very good at that. They are very good at spending um, a lot of investment money on big things to help the space industry, but also then going, okay, what else can we do with this? Um, and they have had a lot of, I believe the ESA or European Space Agency, sorry, have a full like a whole department that take all those technologies and go okay where else can we use them and it's not always just from a business point of view obviously that is good business but it's often um just a progression thing and just making sure that the sort of the public perception of space is not is not negative yeah and is easter your only route to to go to space or are you eyeing up some of the other agents <laughs> uh, at the moment yes because because i'm a british citizen that, that is uh, my route so if you would go to nasa you'd have to be an american citizen for example so you have to be a citizen of the country that you apply for so um european space agency obviously covers most of the european countries so that that is my route to space it's not to say it, i couldn't go to the us um, but yeah. This is where I want to head. And how are most most employers like you to envisage a long term career with them? <laughs> so you're very open about your you know your ambition is to how does how do you who do, how do your current employer feel about supporting your long term goal, which is not to be employed by them? <laughs> yeah, um, I think a lot of them don't think I'm going to do it. No, <laughs> no they are actually very supportive, um, and I've got to give them their credit because they are very very supportive of it, um, and they do help me where they can. Um, I think just because 
I would be going off to do something. There's this, this mentality that you join a big firm like BA Systems and you're there for life. Um, and that's not really sort of the next generation's mindset anymore. It's a lot of moving around, a lot of doing different things. Um, but one of the great things about moving around is that you learn a lot and you learn different approaches and different ways of doing things. And so there's no reason why I couldn't come back after I've gone and had my time in space and <laughs> have my time with Ethan and, and, and carry on and do and change something another way um, or go and work on something else completely different. There's, there's no um, sort of right or wrong way about it. And so they are supportive of my dream in the sense that um, it keeps me motivated, it keeps me engaged um, and they know that it's my passion. Yeah, so it's a really interesting point actually because you're not going to stay in space. <laughs> <laughs> I do come back, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for sharing your experience with us. I think it will be quite inspirational to people who have similar ambitions or who haven't even thought about what they'd like to do yet. So we really appreciate you taking the time to share that with us. Robin, thank you very much for having me. Sophie is currently the IET's Young Woman Engineer of the Year, but the awards are now open for 2019 and you can apply up until the 7th of July. The awards honour the very best early career women engineers working in the industry today. Apply now via the iet.org forward slash YWE. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media, hosted by Bernadette Ballantyne, produced and edited by John Young, with fact-checking by Rian Owen. Special thanks to the IET and BAE Systems. Rory Harris is the Rocket Man. If you like our podcast, please leave a comment or review on your podcast app. It really helps others to hear about us, or tell a friend to have a listen. Engineering Matters can be found on all podcast apps and on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media. We're also on Facebook, Reddit and LinkedIn. And you can follow us on Twitter at Engineer Matters. Are you involved with engineering that matters? Let us tell your story. Contact Ryan at rebemedia.com. Hold up. 